Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Truth in Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. Uh, John, this week we continue our series we started last week on heaven. You gave a, a wonderful survey yeah. of the whole topic. But from this point forward, we're really going to get into the nitty-gritty of what heaven is. Yeah. Tell me about that. So we're just going to talk today about what happens to a person at the point of death. So many of us want to know. We, we should know so that we don't approach our own death, which is gonna happen, right? I mean, we don't wanna approach our own death and saying, you know, it's just a black wall, I have no idea, when the Bible is just filled with revelation that yeah. tells us what to expect. So here's a question, just, it may have nothing to do with what you're gonna talk about today, but why do you think it is we have so many misconceptions about heaven when there's so much there in the Word? You know, Ben, I think a lot of us take our cues from a dumb movie that we've seen <laughs> somewhere, something like that, yeah. and instead of, listening to the scripture and, uh, and watching what it tells us. Excellent, excellent. Thanks, John, and uh, join us in just a moment with Dr. John Newfeld right here on Truth and Life Today. I'm talking about what happens to a believer at the point of death. And uh, if you are facing your own death, I think what I'm going to say will be greatly encouraging to you. Um, but the reality is we're all going to face our own death and death often strikes an individual as a great shock. Even people that have known Christ and walked faithfully with him at the point where suddenly they hear a doctor's diagnosis and a time is given, I mean, it's just there's quavering in the voice and this sense of weakness that people feel. And it's very important for us to begin to build into our hearts what the process of death is like and then also what happens to us after we die, and how we're supposed to think about our future. So let me begin by telling a little story about a very, very dear friend who I worked with for a number of years, and his name is Carlin Weinhauer. Uh, Carlin Weinhauer served as a senior pastor before me in a church, and I remember when I received a phone call from him. I hadn't heard from him for a number of years. He was retired, and, and, and I said, ah, Carlin, it's so great to hear from you. And his voice quavered just a little bit, and he said, John, I'm dying. And so I went over to see him, and uh, from diagnosis till death, it was about five weeks. And uh, he grasped a hold of his faith again, but it's very important for us at those moments when we stand at the precipice of our own death to have some understanding of what are the events that are now going to play out in our own lives. I'm not talking about emotionally, but I'm talking about what the Bible says happens to a believer at death. So follow with me for a moment. 1 Corinthians 15:55 Paul writes, "O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting?" Now the only way that you're going to have the sting taken out of death is for you to read the text of scripture carefully and come to terms with what actually will happen as you approach your own death and then move beyond the gates of death. So I'm going to begin by asking a most important question, and it's this: if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you know Christ as Savior and Lord, you've surrendered your life into His hands, and you have now known the reality of the Holy Spirit living in you. You have a desire for the things of God, and you want to put to death the things of the flesh. You're, you're God's man. You've been born again. Now, here's a question that I need to ask. Why is it necessary for believers in Jesus to die at all? I mean, after all, Jesus died for us, did he not? And if he tasted death on our behalf, why are we dying? See, that's a very important question to answer, and that's where I'm going to start. 
Why is it important for believers to die? So let me, let me begin by reading to you from Hebrews chapter 12, and, um, and I'm going to start reading at verse 5, and you're going to wonder what this has to do with death, but, but hang with me for just a moment. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, the writer of Hebrews says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, he, when, when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure, God is treating you as sons. And the passage goes on to say that we are to endure all hardship as discipline. God deliberately sends hardship into our lives so that we will know his chastening hand and so that we will uh, begin to recognize that we belong to him. So uh, let me take that thought and help you to understand that therefore Christians should view the aging process which is accompanied by sickness and eventually by death as a part of God's plan to discipline us, to disciple us so that we might grow in holiness. Now, here's the question, how does that do that? Well, I'm reading now from Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I'm going to tell a little story. I remember when my, when my oldest daughter left our home and uh, she had gone off to university and she uh, was then after a while living on her own and, and, uh, and then uh, she, uh, she had a conversation with my wife and I and it went like, like this. She said, do you know how expensive groceries are? And I remember saying to her, honey, no, are they expensive? I never noticed. And she said, yeah, right, dad. Of course you noticed. But I was trying to make a point and my point was, please understand that I'm not holding you guilty for this because it was a delight to do this, but we spent all that money on groceries because we loved you. And I think that's what God is saying to us in our own death. It is what the Bible calls union with Christ. Hear me. We share not only in the sufferings of Christ, Paul says, but we become like him in his death. Christians don't die because of their sins. Christ died for our sins and has taken the sting of death away from us. So why do Christians die? We die in identification with Christ. In our own death, we are to remember that Jesus didn't die because of circumstances. He chose to die for us. So when we're dying, we are to remember that he died for us. And in participation in his death, we become like him. We recognize how much he gave. Just like my daughter who finally recognized, wow, that's how much money you were spending on groceries. When we come to the point of death, we'll say, this is what Christ chose for me and has allowed me to understand experientially what death meant for him in my own death so that in all ages to come, I will say to him, thank you, Lord Jesus, you tasted death deliberately for me so that I might have eternal life. So that's why you die. You die in identification with Christ, becoming like him in his death. So as you move towards death, recognize that this is cementing your union with Christ.
I've always liked the book of Philippians. I like Philippians because there's a drama that's there. You know, Paul and the Philippian church have been partnering together for the gospel. They want to bring the gospel to the heart of the Roman Empire. And then things changed. Uh, Paul was arrested and eventually he's taken to Rome where he will stand before Caesar's tribunal. Now, Caesar's tribunal would have been a, a scary affair because if you think about it, Paul would have been hauled before the, uh, the, you know, the greatest law court at the time and they would have uh, passed a sentence on him. He would have either been released or he would have been quickly put to death. So that's the drama that you have in the book of Philippians. And so Paul's writing the Philippian church who have been in partnership with him and they want to know how he's doing. So here's what he says, and I'm reading uh, in Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. He says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, watch this, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So in other words, he says, I know that you've been praying for me so that when I stand before Caesar's tribunal and they say, what have you been up to? And he'll say, I've been preaching the gospel. And then he tells them what the gospel is and the implications of the gospel. He knows that the justices that listen to him will decide this man is for death or he's for life. And uh, Paul is saying, thank you for praying for me. I am convinced that because of your prayers, I'm going to have confidence and courage as I stand before that tribunal. I'm not going to be shaking. I'm going to be confident. So, so that's the drama that's, that's behind that. And then he says in verse 21, for and because for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain, he says. See, that's how he approaches the prospect of his own life. You know, if I'm going to live, if they exonerate me at the trial, I'm going to keep on preaching the gospel. It will be about doing that which Christ has called me to do. To live is Christ. I will be submissive to Christ's command, and I will be doing the work of Christ if they exonerate me and let me go. But if I die, he says, that's going to be gain. See, that's the important point. Now, let me keep reading. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So emotionally, he says, I, I'm just longing to be with Christ. That doesn't mean, he says, you know, emotionally, I'm, I'm looking to be executed. I mean, in the end, we know that it wasn't at this trial, but it was a later one that Paul was found guilty and eventually he, uh, he, he had his head chopped off. Uh, he wasn't looking forward to capital punishment and he wasn't looking forward to the event of his death. No believer looks forward to death itself. Death is bitter. It's intended to be bitter. I mean, if we're supposed to have union with Christ, it is the bitterness of death. But Paul says, I, I'm looking beyond the bitterness of the experience of death, and I see something which is better by far. So what every believer needs to ask themselves is, what is it about my dying and what happens after my death that is so much better than what I have? So let me just remember that and, and then move beyond that and come to Revelation 14, verse 13. It says, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who died in the Lord from now on. 
Now that passage basically means that when Christ had given his life for the sins of God's people, when we are saved through the blood of Christ, when we enter into a covenant relationship with Christ, whereas our sins are forgiven and the reality of heaven lies before us, when that has been done, blessed are the dead. In other words, there is something about the dead that has a blessedness about them. See, I, I think that every single believer has to come to embrace that reality that once the experience of dying is over, that I am in the state of blessedness, that my condition, as Paul says, is better by far. So the, the real question that we need to deal with then is, what actually happens to a believer at the point of death? So let's be clear. When anyone dies, their body dies, but not their soul. And if you want to know the difference between the soul and the body, that's not easy to come by, but let me simply say this. The, the, the life, the existence that you presently have is lived both bodily and as a soul as well. I mean, the Bible never kind of quickly draws those two things apart. Now, physiologically, we function. Uh, our brain thinks for us, and uh, you know, all of our nervous systems help us to move in concert with what the brain dictates, and you know, everything else that happens ensure that we continue to have life. But at the point of death, for the first time ever, the soul is torn from the body, and, and a great many people wonder, can the soul actually exist without the body? And that's really the question that gets asked. Now, uh, what the Bible actually does say, however, is that when the soul is torn from the body, it calls that sleep. You know, for instance, in Acts 7, verse 60, when Stephen is stoned to death, it says he fell asleep. So some people think, well, sleep must mean that it's unconscious existence, but that's not what sleep means at all. But at the very least, we will say that the body falls asleep while the soul continues to exist. And so therefore the question is, well, what is that experience like? Do I know anything about that? And that's what we wanna go through. I wanna make sure that you come to understand that in your future, there are a number of stages that you will go through before you receive your final reward. At the point of death, you're still en route, you're still in process, there are other things that are going to happen. Let's find out what happens at death so that we will not fear death itself. I want us to listen to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 9. It says, so we are always of good courage, we know that while we are at home in the body, that is alive, right, at, at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We're away from his immediate presence. Now, I know we always exist in God's presence, but we are not at his dwelling place. So we are of good courage while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. At this point in time, you know, you believe in Jesus, but you haven't seen him. You believe in heaven, but you've never seen the place. Um, that's the kind of courage that we have now. So Paul writes, yes, we are of good courage. And he writes, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. 
So notice being away is being away from heaven. That's the place we are at now. And we look to go to our eternal home. Now, let me give you a number of stages that are a part of our salvation. The first stage is our conversion. So let me read to you from John chapter 5, verse 24. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In other words, you enter into the life of eternity, not at the point of death. You enter into the life of eternity at the point of conversion. I mean, there is a deadness in our own souls. That is, we are, before we're converted, dead to the things of God. But when conversion happens, we enter into what Jesus calls eternal life. We, we pass over the great divide already, and our souls are alive to the things of God. We begin to delight in the things of God. It's the things of God end up being something that we long after. And the Bible talks about this as having a foretaste of the life that is to come. So that's the first stage. It's our own conversion. The second stage is happens at death. And at death, we come into what we might call an intermediate stage. So I'm reading now from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. And I want you to listen carefully because Paul is speaking about the second coming of Jesus. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So here again, we have the word, those who are asleep. That is, before the coming of Jesus, there will be individuals who die. And they are now called being asleep. And yet, as we've already read, Paul has said on numerous occasions that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So whatever it means to be asleep, it means to be in the immediate presence of God. Think about sleep in terms of our context. When you fall asleep at night, you don't go into unconscious non-existence. You see, there are these people that talk about soul sleep, but they're not really talking about a biblical concept. The biblical concept of sleep is that the body sleeps, but our soul is in the immediate presence of God. So Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Uh, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So what are we talking about here? Well, clearly there is this intermediate stage, that is, when a believer comes to know Christ and after they die, they enter into the immediate presence of God and they await the second coming of Jesus in which they will rise. Well, you say, all right, but well, they're in the presence of God. How, how do they rise then? And the answer is that they rise bodily. There is a time at the end of the age when 
the dead in Christ rise bodily. So, you know, whenever we, we, we bury someone, we do that with a hope. It's, we're putting the body in the ground with the hope that the body will rise from the dead even as Christ's body rose from the dead. See, that's the hope of every believer. The life to come is bodily life. So I've said there are a number of stages. So stage number one is conversion. Eternal life already enters into us. Stage number two happens at our own death when we are spiritually transformed into the presence of Christ. Stage number three happens when Christ bodily returns. And by the way, the book of Revelation calls that the first resurrection. You know, it's an interesting thing. The first resurrection, whoever has a part, says Revelation, in the first resurrection will not have a part in the second death. Now, notice it doesn't say the second resurrection. It talks about the second death. So let me go through the stages. First of all, conversion. Secondly, our own death when we are immediately in the presence of Christ and rejoice before him. Thirdly is the resurrection of the body. And then fourthly, the Bible speaks about a millennial period. You know, it's an interesting thing because it's there in Revelation chapter 20 that there's a thousand year reign of Christ when those who have received their physical bodies rule and reign with him. That's the next stage. The stage that follows after that is the stage at the end of the millennium when the great judgment of God occurs and when all humanity is then raised bodily in his presence and faces the judgment seat of God. Great white throne in which they will be judged for everything they have ever done. Those of us who have received forgiveness from Christ will be judged on the basis of what Christ has done. I mean, that's, a, that's the glorious news. But the final stage for us is that stage when heaven and earth comes to an end and God creates a new heaven and a new earth where we will eternally live with him. So those are the stages. Conversion then death and spiritually in God's presence, then the resurrection of the body, then the millennium, and then after the millennium comes the new heaven and the new earth, which is our eternal home where we will always be together with the Lord. That's what we have to look forward to. That's the good news of the gospel. Welcome back to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. John, uh, I want to ask a question. You didn't really refer to it in your message today, but I think it's probably something that comes to some of our minds. When we're talking about the intermediate stage, yeah. would that cause some confusion for people in respect to what purgatory is or might be? Yeah, that's a, such a good question. Uh, let's deal with the issue of purgatory and then talk about the immediate stage. The idea of purgatory comes from an idea of purgation. And the idea is that, you know, you, you know yeah, you've got a lot of sins you haven't dealt with. And so, you know, you got to deal with them after you die. They have to be purged from you. And so it takes some time to do that. But of course, that's not gospel thinking. I mean, the Bible never speaks about purgatory. But what the Bible does speak about is that Christ died for our sins and that he bore our own sins on the body on the tree so that our sins are actually removed. Uh, we are going to be judged on the virtues of Christ and not our own. I mean, that's the good news of the gospel. Yeah. So there is no purgatory at all. It's just okay. not there. Uh, the intermediate stage, I'm going to talk about that the next time we talk about it and try to define it as best we can. But it leaves a great many of us with some confusion. And the confusion is this. 
can I exist outside of my body? And, and how should that be? Yeah, yeah. Um, I can get the idea that I would receive a new body, that my body would somehow be re-energized, but, but how is this? So I think that's really the yeah. question. You know, it seems to come back to all the time. I think we say this over and over and over again. But many of us who are sitting in churches on Sunday don't even think about an intermediate stage. We sort of think about, well, we're, when we die, we've given our lives to the Lord. We're going to that mansion in glory. Yeah. And that's where we're going to be. And yet, again, it seems to come back to we've got to be studying the word if, if we're going to understand what, what lies ahead. Yeah, I, I think we ought to anticipate and look forward to it. And as I've said, we're not looking forward to the experience of dying. And God put it into our system, you know, to, to, to resist death. We weren't created to die. We were created to live. Yeah. Um, so, however, um, this idea that we move in stages to the final reward. And when we get to the final reward, I'm going to say, you know, it's not playing on a golf course somewhere either, right? Yeah. I mean, there is something about heaven that is amazingly articulate. I think it may just surprise all of us about what we're going to find. Well, we've got a lot to look forward to in the next number of weeks yeah. and a lot to look forward to in eternity. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us here again next week for more of Truth and Life Today. Thank you.